All right, so children, now you can be dismissed. And as they are going, I will just um, uh, tell you that in my office, I've had a plaque on the wall for ever since I've been here, in there, about 10 years now. And uh, it is the Hillbilly Ten Commandments. And uh, since we're in the Ten Commandments series, this, this is actually the plaque, since we're in the Ten Commandments series, I thought I would share it with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them. So these are the Hillbilly Ten Commandments. It goes up on, oh, it's small on the screen, but ain't but one God, honor your ma and pa, no telling tales or gossiping, get your hide to Sunday meeting, ain't nothing come before the Lord, no fooling with another feller's gal, no killing except for critters, that's ours today, quit your foul mouthing, no swiping your kinfolk stuff, and don't be hankering for it either. So there's, there's, the, there's the hillbilly Ten Commandments, we'll set that down there. And um, so I realize that those aren't even complete or even all that accurate to the real list of the Ten Commandments, but it's a way to start kind of on a lighthearted note because the Sixth Commandment is one of those ones where we look at and we go, well, at least I got that one down. I mean, at least I have that down, right? We look at it, we go, I got it. Um, I haven't murdered anybody. And so remember last week when I told you the first four commandments have to do with our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. So they really point to him and how we view God and how we love God. And then, so we, we, I define that kind of as a vertical. But then the last of the commandments, the final six, have to do with our horizontal relationship, relationship with people. And, but really, the binding thing that drives them all together or weaves them all together has to do with love. So I'll remind you of the slide I put up last week. And when Jesus said this in Matthew 22, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So that's love God. But then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's love people. So we might think of all the six commandments, of all the, final, of all the commandments, and especially in the final six here, this one, the sixth one, is the easiest to follow haven't killed anybody, and I'm just going to assume that is going to be true for the great majority of people that are in this room or are ever going to hear this message, so we're going to run on that assumption. So because of that, we might see the sixth commandment sort of like it's taken care of, like, okay, I might need to work on the other nine, but the sixth one is good. This should be a pretty short sermon, we'll all go home early. No, you're not. Um, just going to tell you that right now. However, there's more... There's more than what kind of comes out on the surface of this commandment. But before we dive in, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to our familiar text that we've read now five weeks in a row, and we're going to continue to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. We're going to have this down. So this is the Ten Commandments section. I'll be reading from the ESV. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. It's on the screen, but... Man, having it in your hand, boy, what a, what a privilege that is. So follow along, or maybe on your phone if you're one of those people. All right. So, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that, has, or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we look into the sixth commandment this morning, that you'd open our hearts to see um, your law in a, in a clearer way, and how even the sixth one applies to all of us in this room. So open up your word to us and us up to your word, Lord, that we may receive it. And Lord, by the Holy Spirit, I pray that you teach through me and that we would come away um, encouraged, convicted, and understanding more of who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 13 is our verse this morning. It's only four words when we read them in our English Bible. And actually in the Hebrew, it is just two words and directly translated, it just means no murder. That's it. So to help us take a deeper look into the sixth commandment, I want to divide things up this morning kind of into two categories, and I'll have a couple of subpoints each. The first half is going to be more than half. I'll just tell you that now. So the sixth commandment really directs us or affects us culturally. So how does the sixth commandment speak into culture and society? So that we're going to spend some time talking about that. And then we'll finish up talking about the sixth commandment really directing us or affecting us personally. What is the personal application there? So cultural and personal. So to start with, which is I think the most obvious takeaway from the sixth commandment, is that it prohibits unjust, unlawful taking of one's life. Now if we ask people, is murder wrong? The universally accepted answer will be, well yes, of course murder is wrong. But then if we ask them, why is murder wrong? There's less understanding of that in society. To the atheist, the one who doesn't believe in God, he says, for them, it just has to come down. They articulate that murder is wrong because it has to just be there sort of by chance. It's just built into us for some reason. Others may say, well, that's just the way the world works. You can't go around willy-nilly murdering people. You can't go around killing anybody you want. But church, when we look at the pages of Scripture, the very Word of God, we can base our answer on God's Word and not just a feeling or something we get by chance. We're all created in the image of God. Regardless of one's belief in God, we're still created in his image. Regardless of age or skin color, ethnicity, disabilities, political party, male or female, everyone is created in the image of God. And it's because that everybody has value and dignity because we are created in that image. We bear the image of the creator. Now, this doesn't mean we have the same body as God, for God is spirit. We can see that in John 4, 24. 
but it means that we have the mind directed by reason. We have choice. There's morality. And socially, we're created for fellowship. God made us relational because God is relational, as he is in a loving relationship within the Trinity and has been for all eternity. So humanity bears an image because we're like God in those ways. That is unique to the rest of the creation. The animals don't possess those things. Nothing else was created in God's likeness. Only human beings bear that. So when we read Do Not Murder, the reason goes beyond chance in the way the world works. And it goes right to the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. If one was to murder somebody, then they have murdered someone made in the image of God, and that's an offense to God. Therefore, the command not to murder is a command to uphold and defend the image of God. This will come up again, but I also want to make a distinction between two Hebrew words that are important to know. There's a Hebrew word for kill, and then there's a Hebrew word for murder. The one used in our text this morning is the one for murder, the intentional premeditated killing of innocent life. I guess to say it in a more succinct way, all murder is forbidden, but all killing isn't. And I will draw some further distinctions on that a bit later. So as we look in our culture today, what ways do we see the sixth commandment being broken? If you think about that question, I'm sure you could think about things that are coming up in your mind. And I'm just going to tell you that these things aren't easy to talk about. They're really even not fun to preach about. Um, it's not fun to research. <laughs> it's, it's not fun to say this truth, but just because it's not fun and just because it's not what we want to hear all the time doesn't mean it shouldn't be said. These things are tragic and difficult. Perhaps some of the toughest questions I've ever received as a pastor revolve around the issue of self-murder or suicide. Now, I understand that this issue has most likely affected most of us in this room one way or another, whether an acquaintance a friend or family member, one, many of us have experienced this tragedy of suicide. Suicide in all cases is breaking of the sixth commandment. And biblically, we see five examples of suicide in the Old Testament. Abimelech, Saul, Saul's armor bearer, Ahithophel, and Zimri. All of these suicides are in the context of shame and defeat. And with the exception of Saul's armor bearer, these men are noted for their wickedness. Perhaps the most well-known suicide in Scripture is the one example we find in the New Testament, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, Matthew 27. Oftentimes, this issue leads us to ask questions, hard questions, about the salvation of individuals who profess the name of Christ but suffer this tragic end. And I confess to you, and we just need to remember that God is the one who sees the heart, God is the one who sees the heart, and ultimately that final judgment is his to know. Some things are too big for us to know. God knows, though. And we see that in the case of Judas, however, that the fact that he did not find forgiveness in Jesus, because Jesus said it would be better if he was never born. In Matthew 26, and in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he refers to Judas as the son of destruction. So Judas may have felt remorse for betraying Jesus, and he tried to return the money, but that remorse didn't lead to repentance, so Judas was not saved. Yet, we must remember that this sin can be forgiven like any other sin. A truly redeemed person has been forgiven of sin past, present, and future. 
But it's also true on, as well, church, that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and Scripture defines those in Christ as those who have hope in a number of places, Acts 24, Romans 5, Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, and others. And furthermore, one who repeatedly considers this option or, or considers suicide is practicing sin in their heart. And 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who is born of God practices sin. And finally, suicide, I think, is often the ultimate evidence of a heart that rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ. It rejects him as the Lord because it's an act where one is taking his life or her life into her own hands completely rather than submitting to God's will for it. So to answer the question, is suicide a breaking of the sixth commandment? Clearly, that's a yes. And that's an easy one to answer. The more difficult question is, is it possible for a true believer to commit this act of sin? As we look at scriptures, I would conclude that it is possible it is, it is possible because nowhere does it say that suicide is an unforgivable sin. However, I would also draw the conclusion because the characteristics of the believer is supposed to possess hope, we're supposed to possess a purpose and a love for Christ, I would say it's very rare and in those cases probably has more underlying conditions of mental health and other issues going on. Again, it's a complicated matter and ultimately it's up to God. But we see that the characteristics of a believer would lean against heavily someone who would commit that act. So all that to say, in your life, if you know someone who struggles with these thoughts, they need the love of God. They need the, the law of God. They need Jesus. They need the gospel. They need to hear that God will never lead us into a situation where breaking his commandment is the only way out. Let me say that again. They need to hear that God will never lead us into a situation where the breaking of his commandments are the only way out. Another thing culture does in breaking the sixth commandment is sort of related to this topic. We call it euthanasia, or as it's become to be known as doctor-assisted suicide. Doctor-assisted suicide laws continue to be approved around the United States and in much of the Western world. Some of these laws don't even require a notification of family members, nor do they require second opinions nor do they require a specific kind of doctor to give a diagnosis. Some even allow people to pick up drugs at the pharmacy to administer themselves at home. This isn't a lot different between the one who commits suicide or the one who opts for doctor-assisted suicide. The end result is one is making the choice to end their own life. Granted, the reason behind the doctor-assisted suicide might be because there's terminal illness. This still doesn't give the right to break the sixth commandment. Again, I remind you, God will never lead us into a situation where violating his commandments is the only option. And these laws not only allow people to think that they can break the sixth commandment, it also becomes a very confusing message in our society. According to the CDC, whatever you want to think of them nowadays, in 2021, suicide is the second leading cause of death among 10 to 14-year-olds. Second leading cause of death to 10 to 14-year-olds in the United States at that, and, and a rate that tragically increased during the government-imposed lockdowns of COVID. As a result, there is a greater emphasis in the schools now about suicide prevention. Even in the secular world, there still seems to be a message promoted to students that puts a value on life, which is good. That protects innocent life. That's a good message. But yet when we get to the elderly, it becomes a very different message. Society discourages young people from committing suicide, but encourages old people to do it. It's one more way society glorifies youth 
and shuns the elderly. We live, therefore, in a pro-death society, and it's baffling how fast things can change. I came across this in my reading this week. This is a great book if you want to go deeper in the Ten Commandments, by the way. I know all of us have been using it that have been preaching up here in this series. So Kevin DeYoung writes this in the book. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch physicians refused to obey orders by Nazi troops to let the elderly and terminally ill die. However, in 2001, Holland became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide. Here's the kicker. It only took one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Not very long. The sanctity and concern for life is certainly diminishing. And we see that in many ways in our culture, from movies to music to video games and pop culture in general that glorifies death. And that desensitizes all of us to it. It surrounds us. Furthermore, these laws also have very ugly consequences. As more and more people experience insurance companies denying them treatment because it's cheaper for them to give the pills to end their life. These doctor-assisted suicide laws were passed as a voluntary option, and now in some cases they almost become involuntary as if there is no other option. On top of that, in the Netherlands, it's now true that more requests for assisted suicide come from family members, not the patients themselves. This makes it closer to doctor-assisted murder, but that's not new either, as we'll see in a moment. So now I want to make a clear distinction. And this is important, ending treatment of a certain medical condition is not breaking the sixth commandment. When somebody with a terminal illness says, I'm done with this treatment, I'm done with dialysis, I'm done with chemotherapy, I'm done with transfusions, the list goes on, I don't want to be on a machine keeping me alive. I've lived my life, and it's okay if God's calling me home. That's not the breaking of the sixth commandment. I've made it clear to my wife and other family members, and there's ever a situation where there's a horrible accident or my health declines, I want to give life every possible chance, but I don't want to be artificially kept alive for a prolonged time. In other words, if Jesus is calling me home, I'll accept the invitation. Choosing to end treatment is not choosing to end your life. What the sixth commandment speaks against is the termination of life, not the termination of treatment. Those are very different, and that's an important distinction. So I know these subjects are heavy topics, I know they carry with them a lot of emotion, all from a commandment that seems easy on the surface, don't murder. That becomes much more difficult when we dig, and we're going to continue to dig. Church, I believe any sermon on the sixth commandment would be absolutely incomplete with talking about how it absolutely prohibits abortion. Again, perhaps more than the first two, this topic can be touchy, painful, Maddening, emotional, brings tears to our eyes, and a whole host of other reactions I didn't list. Abortion is the clearest breaking of the sixth commandment in our world today. According to the National Right to Life, we are approaching 65 million abortions since 1973. To put that number in perspective, the largest football stadium in America is Michigan Stadium. There it is at least according to Google, you can check me on it, but this stadium holds over 107,000 people. That's a lot of people. Those who have been aborted in the United States since 1973 could fill that stadium over 604 times. 
as a messenger of the gospel and a preacher of the word, as a pastor. It's not my goal to stand up here and offend, but rather give you the truth from God's word. The sixth commandment forbids murder, and abortion is murder. Some might say it's not the preacher's job to be political. Church, I would disagree with that at times, but I'm not even talking about politics. That's a whole other topic. Abortion is ultimately morality-based, not politically-based. It's a moral issue, and it always has been, because it's evil to murder children. Certainly, it's woven into politics, but our opinions and our thoughts on abortion should not be driven by political opinion. It shouldn't be driven or influenced by any other opinion. Our conclusions should be informed by the Word of God and what He says on the matter. In the very next chapter in Exodus, we see the eye-for-an-eye principle mentioned. And if we read the context there in that chapter, we read that it has to do with injuring a woman's baby while still in the womb, because that life was considered life. And if that life was damaged, then that life was to be taken that did that damaging. There was extreme punishments for doing that. In the Psalms, we read, for, and this is a familiar passage, we all know it, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David says, I praise you, and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Church, life begins at the moment of conception. Once conceived, we see God very actively working. As the psalmist declares, God's power in forming life, knitting together all the intricacies of a human body, the miracle that it is, the miracle that a baby is in the mother's womb is being knitted together by the creator himself. And it's a magnificent display of God's power and his control over life. To the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This points to the fact that God knows all of us even before he begins the work of forming us in the womb. Every life has a plan. Every life has a purpose. And God providentially oversees all of that, every bit of it. And then lastly, in the Proverbs, we read this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord doesn't take lightly to those who shed innocent blood. There is no softer way to put this. The Lord, the Lord hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And who is more innocent than a defenseless child in the womb? He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. And we see that in our society. As those try to justify the killing of children, as they try to rationalize, well, they're not human or they don't feel pain, they devise this wicked plan because maybe this child's not convenient. And they make haste to run to evil. You know, it's been about a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and we celebrated that decision. But, and I can say that that was a step in the right direction, but what it did was reveal the leaders who were going to make haste to run to evil. Now that it's back in the states, in control of what the states want to do about abortion, Oregon loosened the abortion restrictions, and now essentially there is no restriction. In other words, when the Supreme Court said we're going to put abortion back into the state's hands, the representatives in Oregon made haste to run to evil and make wicked plans to further open up access to this 
heinous act. Oregon is worse now than it was when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. Additionally, we see those in leadership and pro-abortion people bearing false witness and breathing out lies. They want to call abortion women's health care. This is not health care. Health care is maintaining or restoring a physical or mental health. There is no way that definition can include the killing of a child. They are lying tongues who breathe out lies. As Christians, we must be careful who we align ourselves with. And this includes, yes, who we vote for in a political realm, because if one supports individuals who support abortion, they are standing behind those who are making haste and running to evil, supporting the breathing out of lies, standing behind those who are shedding innocent blood. The church should never take the side of supporting those who are rewriting God's moral law as they celebrate the fact that 65 million babies have been killed in America in the last 50 years. That's an abomination to the Lord and he hates it. There's absolutely no place and no justification for a Bible-believing Christian to support anyone who supports abortion. The two cannot be interwoven. We must let Scripture outweigh and overrule everything else. Now, it's true. We're not looking for a political savior, and I'm primarily not talking about politics. This is an issue of morality, yet God has given us a system of government, and we happen to be able to vote for our leaders and representatives. So we need to vote for the ones who stand for life. It's not a political decision, it's a moral obligation. Think about it. In this world, if the church will not stand up for the unborn, who will? If the church will not stand against the shedding of innocent blood, who will? If God's people will not stand up against those who devise wicked plans in order maybe to play it safe and not be divisive, then are we being representative of God's people or the world? This is one area where the church should absolutely stand apart and stand out from society today. We should not care what the world thinks of us. We already know they won't like us. In Scripture, we read of an absolute heinous and detestable practice of child sacrifice that's referenced in Leviticus 20. People would sacrifice their children to this god, Molech. He was a bronze statue, and, they, and his hands were held out in front of him, and they'd heat it up to red-hot temperature, and then they'd place their live children on the hands of this detestable god. This, of course, did not please the true Lord, and the ones who took part in it were to be put to death. We read of child sacrifice to horrible gods, but today in America and around the world, children are sacrificed to the god of convenience, comfort, and money. Now, after speaking as boldly as I know about abortion, and as hard as that is to let those truths sink in, let me also speak boldly about the Savior who can redeem. I must speak the truth, but the truth in love. My intention is not to drive unnecessary daggers into the hearts of those who've processed through a wrong choice or a wrong decision they've made. You can have complete and total forgiveness in Christ. His grace is more than sufficient for you, and if you've repented before the Savior of the world, then child, you are forgiven. You are, his, you are in his family, and he has you. You need to hear that. You need to hear that if you've been involved in making some of those decisions around abortion that you now know are wrong. I know there's much pain and heartache associated with this topic, but if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin, and the power of the Savior he can forgive you, he can restore you, and he can take all these things that God hates and forgive it by the power of the cross. That's the power of Christ's love and what he's done. 
okay, these are, these are tough things, <laughs> no doubt. We've so far mentioned three things that the Sixth Commandment prohibits, but these are some things that involve the taking of life, and, and the Sixth, and, and there, there, but there are, what I mean to say, there are some things that involve the taking of life that the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit. Remember, the context of the Sixth Commandment was put into place to protect the image of God and to protect the image bearers, and that's based out of love for our neighbors. We just saw in the last text that God calls for the lives of people who take part in certain activities such as child sacrifice, which is a segue into the next phase of this commandment that we must deal with. What about things like capital punishment? The sixth commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. We must remember that life is sacred and we're all made in the image of God, but the one who murders and takes the life of another person, that was to be punished severely. In Genesis 9, well before the commandments were written, it says this, And for your lifeblood I'll require reckoning from every beast I'll require it, and from man. From his fellow man I'll require reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Like I said, well before the Ten Commandments were established, God said anybody who takes the life of another man, or even an animal who takes the life of another man, must die. So capital punishment for murder was not considered an assault on God's image, it was a defense of it. Again, it's not an assault on God's image, it's a defense of his image. The assault on God's image was the actual murder. And in the very next chapter in Exodus 21, verse 12, we read, Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is done, however, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place that I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. God's word speaks clearly. If someone premeditates and intentionally kills, that is murder. And the appropriate punishment for that commanded by God is death. Now someone could cause death or harm to somebody unintentionally, and that's really the deciding factor between murder or killing is the intention. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is where it's important to get the distinction between kill and murder. Remember, the original Hebrew word here used in the sixth commandment is murder, and that carries with it the idea of an intentional, premeditated, unjust taking of one's life. Some translations, like the King James, says kill instead of murder in the Sixth Commandment. Murder is a better translation because God does not prohibit all killing. For example, despite your preference, it's okay to kill animals and eat them. The Sixth Commandment has nothing to do with our diet. When, when Peter was having visions about animals in Acts 10, God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter was a fisherman. People eat fish. And Jesus called Peter to be one of his disciples, and he never rebuked him for being a fisherman. Jesus himself fed fish to thousands upon thousands in his ministry. So we're free to have our own ideas and opinions about eating meat, but those ideas in our conscience that say we shouldn't should not be coming from Scripture because they don't. God says it's okay. He allows it. To say it again, there's an important distinction between kill and murder. We've seen God allows or even commands the death penalty for those who have unjustly taken human life, which is murder. So if we apply that to our context today, 
is it lawful for the government to exercise capital punishment? As we've seen, this principle was established very early on in Genesis 9. I know there's a lot I could say on this, but I just kind of want to mention a side note here. You might be challenged. You might be challenged to believe that, you know, you can't be pro-life and pro-capital punishment at the same time. Well, there's no greater opposite. There's no greater opposite. The two have nothing to do with each other. There's a big difference between murdering an innocent child and dealing with one who has shed man's blood intentionally. It's interesting to note as our society pushes these ideas, they want to legalize abortion and do away with the death penalty. Exactly the opposite of what God set up. Just to finish this section on the sixth commandment and how it applies us to us in our culture, I will mention the topics of self-defense and war. The sixth commandment does not prohibit you from defending yourself, nor does it prohibit just war. It is important to let the rest of the Bible inform us about the Ten Commandments. We need to consult the whole counsel of God to inform us more specifically about these commandments. If all we do is read those four words, then we'll lack understanding. So on the topic of self-defense, Exodus 22, again, just a page turnover, says, If a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, if a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and the homeowner strikes and kills him, then the owner is not guilty of murder for defending his property. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples that if they don't have a sword, to go buy one. He knew that it was going to get rough for them at this time. And the sword was a lethal weapon to be used wisely in self-defense, certainly against animals at times, but also against others. And clearly, people, or Peter chose to use it unwisely when he cut off Malchus's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. Even so, at that point, Jesus didn't tell him to get rid of the sword. He just told him to put it away. It wasn't the right use. It also becomes very apparent that Peter needed to practice more because I doubt he was aiming for his ear. Nevertheless, the principle is still true that we live, that we are to live at peace with all men as much as it is possible. That is our goal. We are to live at peace with all men as much as possible. Paul tells us that in Romans 12. But sometimes when it's not possible, with great wisdom and discernment, self-defense is not a forbidden option. The same truth extends to those who are in jobs whose main duty is to protect the peace or protect the general public. Police officers are not breaking the sixth commandment when they lawfully use force against one who is putting the public or themselves in danger. If the bad guy has a gun and is pointing it at innocent people or has already shot innocent people, then the police officer who puts an end to that threat is not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. In fact, quite the opposite. They are upholding the commandment by protecting the image of God and using their God-given authority that God has placed in government officials to protect good and punish evil. Again, Romans 13 speaks to that. Similarly, a soldier in war is, is doing his job as a soldier is not guilty of murder. Of course, peace is always the goal, but sometimes war is necessary to defend peace. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament clearly didn't, or didn't, didn't prohibit warfare. God sent Israel into battle several times. Again, Romans 13 informs us that government is to be the agent of God's wrath to those who do evil and to protect the innocent. 
Both Jesus and John the Baptist encountered soldiers, and neither one of them said, if you're going to be a true Christian, you have to resign from the army. In Luke 3, 14, the soldiers asked John, what shall we do? And his response was, be content, don't extort money. Basically, he told them, be an honorable soldier. He didn't say quit. Okay, that was a lot. There's a lot there. So to review thus far, applying the sixth commandment across our culture today, the sixth commandment prohibits suicide and euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide and abortion. It does not prohibit self-defense, just war, capital punishment, or killing animals for food. But I would like to conclude this last part of this commandment by talking about how this is more personally applicable to us. How we are all held accountable by the words in the sixth commandment. As I said at the beginning, this seems to be as though it's an easy one to follow. In fact, in my conversation with Pastor Wally over at the church next door here, we're doing these series together, so we get, to, we get together each week and kind of compare notes and talk about things. It's always a great time. And we were both recounting stories about just conversations with people. And it seems like if you ask the question to somebody, hey, are you a good person? And they answer, well, yeah, I haven't killed anybody. I mean, that seems to be like the benchmark of society's, like, line of what good is. Church, the bar is not set high. <laughs> I, I haven't killed anybody, so therefore, I mean, I must be okay. There's worse people. It says that they think God will grade on a curve. Like, well, okay, they're worse than me, so as long as I'm better than the worst, I'm okay. That's just not how it works. But just if we, and as we've done this morning already, we need to let Scripture inform us on the difficult issues. We need to let the words of Scripture not only encourage us and inform us, but also convict us. We are not innocent when it comes to the Sixth Commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, You've heard it, or you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hells or to the hell of fire. Now all of a sudden, our whole thought process on the sixth commandment must change. This alters the discussion greatly. And Jesus didn't change the commandment. He basically just said, what you had was an introduction. And it's been understood at only a surface level. But now he aims it at our hearts, and he makes it personal. There's a hard application here. Sure, the letter of the law was not to murder, but the spirit of the law prohibits the acts that even lead to murder, such as anger and hatred. Those are the seeds that are planted that lead to murder. They are the opposite of love, which is the whole goal of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love people. But what Jesus just did is make everyone in this room <laughs> uncomfortable, including myself. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have been angry or had burning anger against someone who has wronged us. We've all spoken words that we wish we could have taken back, and sometimes we don't want to take them back, but we should. We've said things that we would not want uttered in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he has heard them. This kind of anger can also include bitterness or a burning anger. It may not be a violent outburst. 
but it is anger that we let simmer inside of us. It's our disposition and our attitude that comes from the heart that Jesus is speaking to. That renders us all guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John sheds even further light on the sixth commandment. Again, to say it another way, murder might be the mature plant, but the seeds are hate and anger and bitterness. And if we possess those seeds, then we are liable for judgment. What is the antidote to all of that? Love. This is what is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. So the Sixth Commandment isn't, where we can, isn't one we can just skip over and say, well, I've got that one down. Church, we don't. What it does is, once again, what the whole law does. It reveals that we cannot save ourselves. It reveals that we have sin in our life that we cannot pay for. But I want you to hear me clearly. We serve a big God. We serve a forgiving God. Jesus, the very one that convicts our hearts of sin and shines a spotlight on the guilt of us breaking the sixth commandment, is the very one that went to the cross to pay for it. Friends, I understand we've covered some ground today. It's emotional, uncomfortable, sorrowful, convicting, among many other thoughts and emotions as well. It's emotional ground. But I want to specifically say that if you're here today and abortion has been part of your past, I will not lighten the atrocity that it is, and I, will call, and I will not call it something that it's not. It's murder. But it's not the unforgivable sin. It does not have to keep you separated from Christ. Christ came to save sinners. That's me. That's everyone in this room. Everyone that'll ever hear this message. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and none of us are able to pay the debt that we owe to a holy God to restore that relationship. But Christ came to save sinners. He is the one who took our place on the cross at Calvary. He is the one who shed his blood so sin can be forgiven and atoned for. I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll keep saying it. There is no sin so bad that Christ's blood cannot cover. His love covers sin and his blood covers sin. His love allows us to love like we should. You can be washed and you can be a new creation if you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe. We are all guilty of breaking the law of God, including this sixth commandment. No matter what area that we're guilty in, Jesus stands ready and willing to forgive. All you must do is ask, confess him as Lord and repent. The very law of God, the sixth commandments we covered already, only point us to our need for a savior. And that's the point of the law. We must understand our need is a true need. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, uh, even in the hard things, that you speak clearly. Lord, I thank you so much for your forgiveness, um, that there is no sin too great that you cannot forgive, that you are willing and able, more than able, to forgive. So Lord, I pray for those here this morning that hear this message, that have heard this message. God, if there's unconfessed sin in our life, I pray that we would run to the foot of the cross, that we would cast those cares on Jesus. Lord, that we would confess and repent 
of those things, Lord, so we can be made new because you offer that. That's the amazing transaction, our sin for your righteousness. So, Lord, I pray that that is what really comes from a message like this is just us running to you as our only hope, as our only outlet, as our only one who can save because you truly are the only one who can. In Jesus' name, amen.